Now, I don't frequently stray from my uh, primary text, uh, but the elders and I agreed that it would be appropriate to do this in light of what um, has recently taken place in Canada. I don't know if you pay attention to Canadian politics. Um, I try to pay attention to some degree of politics all over the world just so that I can see what's on the horizon here, uh, see what we'll be contending against, or with, rather. And uh, so anyway, uh, recently the Canadian government has passed legislation amending their laws regarding freedom of expression and religious freedom, religious liberties. And uh, these liberties are now limited concerning an issue of sexuality, at least engaging with others that are of a certain sexual uh, persuasion. It's the Charter uh, Statement Bill C-4, that's what they call it, an act to amend the criminal code, conversion therapy of Canada. That's the official name, uh, the amendments that they have passed regarding conversion therapy, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. Um, you know, it's interesting that from a secular perspective at least, much of what we do as a church can essentially be viewed or interpreted as conversion therapy. You see, our commission from Christ is to convert as many people to Christ by means of discipleship as possible. But from the world's perspective, this would be equivalent to therapy, indoctrination, uh, proselytization. In, in gospel preaching, it is required that we call people to repentance. Now, let me say that as clear as I can. It is required in gospel preaching that we call people to repentance. If you share what you think is the gospel without repentance, you actually have not preached the gospel of the Bible. Uh, you've omitted something that Jesus says is essential for salvation, which is repentance. So we must preach repentance in our gospel preaching. Uh, and another way that uh, that is said is that we bring with the gospel message that people must be converted. They must be converted. Depending on which translation you have, those words can be interchangeable. Repentance, conversion, things like that. And we also preach that a life should be consistent with repentance. And the life that is consistent with repentance is, is being daily conformed to the character, the likeness, uh, the morality, the virtues of Christ. And the way that we do that is by obeying his commands. And that whole process is a work of the Spirit that we call sanctification. And his work, we would say, is the ultimate conversion therapy. Uh, though I hope to never employ that phrase again because of what it means in secular society. So why am I addressing this today? Well, because the Canadian bill is not simply an attack on uh, you know, freedom of speech or religious liberties. It's, it's government-sanctioned rebellion against God that grants them the authority to punish Christians for their practices. We haven't seen this in Western culture until now. Okay? We haven't seen it. What is basically happening, or what has happened, 
is they've, Canada has outlawed truth as the means to helping people. Understand that. They've outlawed truth as a means to helping people who are struggling with, with many painful things, as the, the bill includes so many things. Now, of course, you know, government-sanctioned rebellion, that's nothing new in the history of the world. But Canada really is the, the great pioneer uh, in the Americas. Uh, last year in Canada, for the first time, uh, on this side of the globe, the church was forced underground in Canada. I don't know if you paid attention to that either, but at least two pastors were imprisoned for holding services either in their homes or in their churches during the COVID lockdowns. Uh, they're no longer in prison now, but they're on a watch list. They're being observed very closely. But now Canada will force the church to go further underground because of this bill. And this is, is of a different nature. They're not simply permitting something immoral, okay, permitting it, but not as, as like with abortion, they're not coercing it. You understand? They're permitting the populace uh, to abort their babies, but they're not forcing us to do it. But in this bill, uh, there is uh, making something that someone is actually doing illegal. They're prohibiting Christians from obeying Christ's command. And if they obey Christ, they will be punished. They will be punished. The bill will criminalize pastors and all believers who disciple certain people, even if those people are their own children. And the bill says that. So what is conversion therapy? Here is uh, their definition that uh, precedes the bill itself. It says conversion therapy, which is defined as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual and to change a person's gender identity to cisgender, that is, their biological gender, and to change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, and to repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, to repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So if we are to translate this for us as the church, it means any kind of practice, treatment, or service that would help a homosexual, a same-sex attracted or gender-confused person, conform to God's design for sex is now a criminal offense that carries with it a penalty of up to five years in prison. It sounds like Sharia law in Islam regarding the conversion of a Muslim to Christ. And what does it include? Well, a parent cannot seek this help for their child in Canada. And if their child is under 18 years old, they cannot take the child out of Canada uh, for that kind of treatment. And no one is permitted to offer this kind of help to others. That's the language in the bill. 
Now, it needs to be said that there are practices of you know, conversion therapy out there that are wrong. They're unhelpful. Some of them are even abusive. But I don't know of a single evangelical organization that uses those kinds of practices in what is called conversion therapy. Uh, and to be clear, I don't even use the term, or the phrase rather, conversion therapy, to describe a biblical approach to helping people who are in sexual rebellion against God, or those who <clears throat> wrestle with same-sex attraction, or they struggle with gender dysphoria. Uh, we call it biblical counseling and discipleship. So why am I bringing this to you? Well, first, I think that um, as believers, we need to pay attention to the signs of the times, because Jesus uh, told us to. And because also I want to stand for biblical truth with my brothers and sisters in Canada. Uh, they are going to be persecuted if they are faithful to the teaching, preaching of the word, and the ministry of people. They will be. Uh, it's not, I don't think it will be long. And I'm not alone this morning. Many American uh, evangelical pastors are bringing the same thing to their congregations, uh, along with many Canadian pastors today. So the, the persecution could begin uh, today. We, at least for now, it's not illegal for us to do this. Uh, maybe you were paying attention, but California tried to pass a similar bill uh, to ban all conversion therapy in the state. Uh, they failed uh, to do that. They'll try again. Other states will follow until they succeed. Uh, so it's on our doorstep. It's coming. Um, one thing that was, uh, came to, uh, on the headlines and it was gone very quickly because it was just so ludicrous, but one city in Texas tried to require pastors to submit their sermon notes uh, to city officials. And of course, it was tossed. Uh, <laughs> but the alarming thing is, is that that kind of thinking is festering and uh, is increasing within our culture here. And it's going to come to the surface very strongly. Uh, they will eventually uh, demonize the church. Um, they're eventually going to secure legislation uh, that will criminalize our practices one doctrine at a time. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, I don't think we're very far behind Canada. And in the, the, the midst of all this, there's something I want you to understand. Counter-legislation will never stop this. Counter-legislation will never stop this. If we're to slow it down, we can only do it by the preaching of the gospel and discipling people in the faith. Uh, we, if this is going to be affected in any way, uh, it's, it, it, it can only be done by us changing the culture by the truth of the gospel. Uh, of course, I believe legislation has its place. I believe that uh, government policy has its place. Good leadership is important. But those things cannot hold back the tide of, of an immoral culture. If the culture is not radically transformed by the light and the power of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the tide of insanity moral insanity will go unchecked and the church will be punished and we will be forced underground. 
Now, I, I know that pastors have been talking about this for a very long time, that it will eventually come in Western culture. And uh, I would say that when I was a kid and I heard that, I, I thought, well, how stupid is that? And uh, so what may have been considered a conspiracy, conspiracy theory back then is becoming a, a reality now. And uh, so those men were correct. It's on our doorstep. So if you would like to contribute to rescuing the culture uh, one person at a time, you're going to have to share the gospel with those people around you because there's no other name under heaven given, Peter said, by which we must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to look at God's word in regard to holy sex and its blessings, unholy sex and its consequences, and then I'll do what is now illegal in Canada, and I'll call for the conversion of those who are outside of God's design for sexuality. You ready? All right. Well, uh, for any meaningful discussion on holy sex, it's essential that we turn to Genesis, where God's un unchanging will is presented to us in his original design. I'll have the passages on the screen. Uh, you're welcome to turn to them. Uh, you may not be able to keep up with me. I'm going to throw a lot of information out at you in a short amount of time. And then, actually, as we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we will end up returning to some of these, uh, because sex is a Bible discussion. Uh, good and bad. If you've read your Bible, I'm sure you've been horrified in parts of Genesis and uh, the book of Judges, Numbers, the prophets. Uh, yeah. Men have been deviant for a very, very long time. So God's original design in Genesis leads to his perfect will, unchanging will, for humanity. We don't turn here to invent holy sex, but to discover it. You understand the difference? We don't invent the rules as human beings. We discover them. We discover them. So here, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Um, I'm crunching it in there so we can get the relevant pieces. Uh, God has been creating world, and he's on the sixth day. He's recently created mammals, essentially. And God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So the three things that are most obvious in these passages. First, People were created by God, so they belong to God. People were created in the image of God, so they, have, they are and they have sacred purpose. And God created them gender-specific, so they have a structured sexual purpose by design. So we belong to God, we're sacred, because we're created in the image of God, and we've been created in two gender categories, male and female, for a specific purpose. That is God's design. That's how he created. So gender 
is not a cultural construct. It's not some invention of uh, a society. Gender is a created reality. Sexuality is. But that's not all. In Genesis 2, we find that with the creation of gender is God's specific intent for gender, his purpose. And so God in Genesis 2 initially created Adam. He gave him the dominion mandate. He placed him in the garden to take dominion. And then God observed something about Adam, and this is what he said. I didn't put the verse. It's uh, verse 18. But it's in Genesis 2. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So first in this passage is God's purpose for marriage. His purpose for marriage is to solve the problem of loneliness. Uh, We would then say responsibility of marriage is children. Okay, children. But marriage itself is to be a covenant of companionship. You also notice that marriage is gender-specific. God created a helper that was suitable or comparable to Adam. Uh, This helper is his equal, but she is his opposite. She will be the opposite gender. The opposites were created for each other to solve the problem of loneliness, to be companions for one another, a kind of intimacy and fulfillment that can only be experienced within the framework of God's created design. The text continues in verse 24. He says, therefore, this is after Eve has been made, says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I like the King James Version better, simply because it rhymes. He is to leave and cleave. Leave and cleave. Leave and be joined. And the two shall become one flesh. So in verse 18, God gave us the purpose for marriage. But here in verse 24, he gives us his initial instructions for marriage, which provides his intended product for marriage, that the two become one flesh. The two be united as one. Now, as we look at man being created in God's image, in this process, he's trying to make man more like God. He takes a plurality and makes a unity out of it, just like the Trinity. And then we'll have children. It's beautiful. To reinforce all of this, to show that God's design is perfect design in the beginning, how it demonstrates his perfect will that is unchanging. Jesus looks back to Genesis, and he actually takes Genesis 1.27, which we looked at, and he takes Genesis 2.24, and he, he smashes them together. He says, it says, and Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting Genesis 1.27. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Question mark. That's from 2.24. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, in the context there, uh, one school of thought among the Pharisees, uh, they had strayed 
from God's will for marriage, uh, and it was ruining the lives of the women that they had been married to. And so Jesus, as we know him very well, he corrected them with God's word in his original design that communicates his will, and then he gave them a, a, a proper tongue lashing. I love Jesus for that. Jesus would be in jail in Canada already. Okay? Be that as it may, the Bible is perfectly consistent everywhere on the issue of marriage and sexuality or marriage and holy sex. It's always gender specific. A man and a woman. It's also numerically specific. It's one man and one woman. This eliminates polygamy as God's original uh, plan, his will. But it also describes what happens when a man and a woman abide in God's design and will. They become one flesh. They achieve a level of unity and intimacy that can be experienced in no other human relationship. It's different, and it's meant to be different. People can have relationships outside of marriage, but they cannot enjoy the potential unity and intimacy experienced by those in a God-honoring marriage. People can be sexually stimulated outside of God's design, outside of Christian marriage, but they cannot experience even a degree of the fulfillment that is found in God's design for marriage. Those who secure relationships outside of God's design, every time they settle for less. So Christian marriage is the only context where sex is holy. I love what Peter says. He tells us that in keeping with God's design and will, a man and a woman in marriage become heirs together of the grace of life. The grace of life, the the enjoyment, the beauty, the blessedness, the goodness. Together, if they conform to God's design and will, they're heirs together. It's the only context where people can be heirs together. First Peter 3, 7. Paul portrays the marriage that abides in God's will as being comparable to the relationship that Christ has with his church, which he gave his life for, so that he might present her to himself holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. No other human relationship can achieve that kind of fulfillment. When we stray from this in any way, we rob ourselves of the grace that God has in store for us. Now, mind you, sin, because of us, is now in the world, which produces many, many unfortunate challenges in marriage, but it doesn't change reality. Okay? No greater joy can be experienced like marriage that is in keeping with God's word and his design. People can experience sexual pleasure in extra-biblical relationships. But the problem is is it's void of purpose. It's void of value. And all dignity is just completely absent. Everything outside of God's design is a counterfeit that will pass away with great disappointment and sorrow, especially in the context of deviant sexuality like homosexuality. So transitioning a bit to unholy sex and its consequences. I want to 
demonstrate this to you. It can be in numerous ways. Here is an important example. Depression, mental illness, and suicide are exponentially higher among homosexuals than heterosexuals. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the idea was perpetuated after the sexual revolution that, because, you know, after the sexual revolution, it was, it was trisexual, you know, try anything. It was perpetuated. But the heterosexual community's lack of acceptance of homosexuality was to blame for the extremely high rate of depression and suicide among homosexuals in America. And this was becoming the accepted reason in the US. But then a study came out of Scandinavia where homosexuality is not only accepted by the heterosexual community at large, the homosexual lifestyle is celebrated. And what they found was that their rates of depression, mental illness, and suicide within the homosexual community was essentially identical to the U.S. They were having the exact same problems that the U.S. was. That is to say, the problem is not caused by a culture's lack of acceptance of homosexuality. There is a problem with homosexuality itself. Something is wrong with the lifestyle. There are consequences for it. And Romans 1 cannot be ignored in light of this problem. Look at what Paul says throughout here. In verse 18, he begins, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Canada will, be, will suffer the wrath of God because they're suppressing truth as a means to help people. He says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So God's righteous indignation against sin is being revealed in our world right now in various ways, as the rest of the chapter uh, describes to us. Now, real quick, by the word revealed, Paul is not saying that God is, is simply telling us about his wrath. No, Paul is saying that God's wrath is being administered in the world right this minute. And, you know, the King James, the New King James says that his wrath is revealed. Uh, I think that can be a bit confusing because the Greek tense is present tense. It's happening right now. His wrath is currently being administered in our world. The consequences for man's moral corruption is not simply reserved for the great day of judgment. Consequences are being divvied out as we speak. And in regard to our context this morning, Paul says this about man's desire for what is sexually perverse. He says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. 
No, not to be reserved only for the, the final day, but happening today. That is the penalty they deserve for their kind of sexual sin. There are consequences, you guys, for deviating from God's design for sex. The wrath of God is being revealed against the homosexual multiple ways. And some of them that we've talked about are obvious, depression and mental illness and suicide. And mind you, this, the righteous indignation of God that is happening now is, is meant, is intended to turn people around. You guys understand this about theology. This is the grace of God that is allotted to us before the final judgment when man cannot repent. It is the grace of God. Paul will continue in chapter 2 to say, you don't understand. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And that goodness comes in this way. How many of you guys discipline your kids when they're naughty? How hateful of you to do that. To spare their soul from hell by doing that. We do that because we want them to change their behavior. We do that because we want to save them from trouble in life. God is doing that to humanity. There are many other studies that reveal a host of other issues that the homosexual community struggles with physically, medically, and emotionally, especially among gay men. Another lie that was perpetuated in Western culture was that homosexuals are primarily mistreated by the heterosexual community. That homosexuals are basically persecuted by heterosexuals. Well, it doesn't agree with the facts. The mainstream media has presented a false narrative Surprise to the American public, but the record submitted by law enforcement across the board is that the vast majority of all crimes committed against homosexuals are by other homosexuals. Many of them lovers' quarrels that, that go violent, especially among men. The media only reports crimes against homosexuals when it's committed by a heterosexual. So by and large, the homosexual community is a curse to itself. A curse to itself. The wrath of God is being revealed in that community. So do not believe the lies. Do not let our culture make you feel bad for having a biblical worldview. And do not let them intimidate you with their rhetoric. I know this could be a surprise to you, but the media lies. They're under the sway of the wicked one, as John says. The prince of the power of the air. Because homosexuality is a sexual sin that deviates from God's design. It stands in opposition to his will. And for that reason, it experiences and is experiencing a host of consequences. God is trying to turn them. And mind you, we should be participating with that conversion. Just as we were spared from judgment, 
Paul says that he is now a debtor to do his best to snatch people from the fire. There's also now more and more the issue of gender confusion or what we call gender dysphoria. There's the transgender movement that is picking up momentum like crazy, transsexualism, the things that are included in the what they call LGBTQ. This is where things can get very, very confusing. Um, terms, and then there's the pronoun thing, and um, it's hard to keep up, if you noticed, uh, with, with how to navigate all of this stuff. But understand it's confusing because those who are in these communities and those who are sympathetic to these communities they are confused themselves. They're confused. Also, the rules are changing quickly because the left, which we confuse for a political machine, we confuse for a political machine, is at the helm of all of this. The left is actually a religious cult that has a very active and powerful political arm Okay, that is driven by its religious ideologies. The left, understand, it is the new paganism It's the new paganism. And its mantra is antichrist. It is contrary to him in the English. Of course, antichrist in Greek means uh, counterfeit. Uh, But they are opposed to all things Christian. The left hates God and his word. And that's why when you compare their doctrines with God's word in Genesis 1 through 2, you find that they take an antithetical stand They oppose everything that God loves. I can take Genesis chapter 1 and put it side by side with their doctrines. And it's as if they read the text and said, that's what God wants, so that's what we hate. But most of them have not read the text. It's just so demonic. I want to demonstrate some of this confusion that they wallow in. And if you're not careful in society, you'll step in it. It came on really strong about five or six years ago by the left that that gender is not a biological or anatomical reality. Now, it's it's been brewing, especially in anthropology and and things like that, but it has never come, you know, it's it's never been so bold before uh, as it is now. But they insisted that gender is nothing more than an invention of society. It's purely a cultural thing and not something that is universally true. In other words, gender does not actually exist. There's no such thing as a boy, and there's no such thing as a girl, a man, or a woman. We may have reproductive organs and chromosomes that are consistent with those organs, but none of those things determine what our gender is. Gender, they say, is nothing at all. That was their doctrine. At least it is when it suits them and makes their case. Okay. But then, as you know, the whole transgender thing came to the forefront in our nation where men were saying that they were actually a woman trapped in a man's body and women were saying that they were men housed in a woman's body. And people who were brave enough to speak the truth said, no, you are a male in a male's body, and you're suffering some kind of mental illness or distress, you're confused, please let us help you. 
But the prophets on the left got in the way and said, if this little boy believes that he is a girl, then he is a girl. And if this lady believes that she's a man, how dare you say that she is a woman? Listen, we're not the ones that are confused here. They're the ones who insisted that gender doesn't exist, and now they're insisting that it does. They're saying that if someone feels like they are a different gender than what agrees with their anatomy and biology, they are that gender. But if gender is not a thing in reality, as they insist, how can these people feel like any particular gender? If gender does not exist, you can't know what it feels like to be a specific gender. If the gender female is not a thing, no one can feel like a female, not even a female. Nobody. Only the moral relativist thinks he can have it both ways in the real world. But you guys, this is a real contradiction. They told us gender doesn't exist and that gender does exist. You cannot have it both ways. It's either one or the other. Two things cannot be simultaneously true and contradict one another. It's, it's logical insanity. Let me give another place where they're confused. The same people complain and complain and complain that patriarchy dominates the world. Now, patriarchy means man rule, male rule, which is confusing because there's no such thing as male. So how can you have male rule? But they hate male rule. Our world is dominated. It's controlled by men, and things must change. Well, what about sports and the workforce? You know, things should be equitable, they say, between the genders. There should be equal pay for equal work in spite of gender. But men seem to always fare better than the women. Men are treated better than women. They're voted into office more often than women. They get better jobs than women. They're recognized for accomplishments more than women. And so other than contradicting themselves, again, by using gender in the biological sense, they have had their doctrine come back and bite them again with the transgender ideology. They, they hate the patriarchy, but by insisting that men can be women... We have biological men who believe they are women competing against biological women in sports, in jeopardy, and in other places. Well, these biological men are dominating in female sports, being credited as a woman for their achievements, winning their medals, and receiving women's scholarships. Okay, yes, recently, two transgenders of opposite biological sex they competed against one another in a college swim meet, and the biological female beat the biological male. And the transgender community is saying, we just silenced all the other voices that oppose us. No, you didn't. You just now are more cons inconsistent than ever. It doesn't change anything, really. Still, biological males competing as women are still dominating the sports, 
But if you take the biological female off the drugs she's on in order to transition to male, she is far less likely to compete at the level she did before. Also, they insist that these biological women are actually men, but they're allowed to compete against women while they're taking these drugs that enhance their performance. What? So this person you believe is a man is allowed to use performance-enhancing drugs while competing against women? And when she dominates in the competition, you recognize her as a man who has beat all the women? Again? Isn't that patriarchy from your perspective? In another context, there is this biological male on Jeopardy who believes that he is a woman and is competing as a woman on the show, and he has smashed the women's record and is receiving the credit as if he were a woman. Listen, the left hates the patriarchy, but because of their commitment to the, their ideology, they are ensuring that the patriarchy prevails. They're ensuring that men stay on top, even when it's not a man. But they believe it's a man who is dominating women. I thought you hated the patriarchy. You guys, does any of this make sense? No, it doesn't. They're now elevating the very thing they were trying to topple. They want it both ways, but they're not getting it both ways. There's more to this confusion, and it just gets more and more sad. You know, there are a number of biological women who believe they're men who are in relationships with biological men who believe they are women. But these biological women who believe they're, they're men experience a great deal of emotional trauma when they get pregnant. They wonder to themselves, how can I be pregnant when I'm a man? And, and how can I be impregnated by this woman that I'm in a relationship with? It is funny because we know that things should be better, but they're not. You guys, these are people created in the image of God, and they've been so twisted by the devil and by culture that their lives are being destroyed. This, this distress makes their dysphoria even worse. They're now more confused. They're more distraught than ever before. And it's because of the affirmation that they continue to get from the community. The Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. 1 Corinthians 14.33 God has given his people a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 his, his word, especially in regard to gender and sexuality, it is not confusing. It's not. It's objective. It's beautiful. But Satan, the God of this world, who has the whole world under his influence, John says, he is the author of confusion. And we're seeing the effects of his rule more and more in what at one time was a Christian culture or a culture that was highly influenced by Christianity. The problems are just piled on top of itself. 
But when a homosexual who is attracted to the same sex, if they consider their situation objectively, it's a confusing one for them. They have to suppress, they have to ignore objective realities. But a question they should answer honestly is this. If homosexuality is natural and normal, why did nature provide me with a body designed for one kind of sex, heterosexual sex, but desires for another kind of sex, homosexual sex? Why is my anatomy and biology at odds with my desires? And which one is correct? Which one is correct? Well, you guys, our desires are merely subjective, whereas our chromosomes and our anatomy is objective. Our attractions change, but our biology remains the same. And for the transgender community, they can try and alter reality, but it's still a failure. It's still a failure. It grieves me when I, I meet a girl who thinks she's a boy, and she's wearing a strap to suppress her breasts. Not that I want to see her breasts. <laughs> but she's trying to look less like the beautiful thing that God created her. It's so sad. Surgeries. They do all of this and they do not change their biological sex. If we were to clone these people after all of these surgeries, their clone would be identical to their biological sex, and their clone would have all of the anatomy. Because if you remove your body parts, it does not change your genetics. How we feel about ourselves or the attractions that we have, it's not a compass for truth. They do not secure anything of real value for us. Understand that if, you're, if our desires or feelings are legitimate gauges for truth or for discovering what is right, then it must be true across the board. And we should have no grounds upon which to condemn any behavior if that behavior is driven by one's feelings or attractions. It would then be wrong for us to condemn pedophilia for its sexual attraction to children. In fact, if this line of reasoning is worked out to its logical end, it would be wrong to restrain a pedophile from having sex with a child if that child consented. The same rule would apply to sex with animals. If my feelings in and of themselves justify my actions, no deed driven by feelings can be condemned. You guys, clearly, the problem is with our feelings and attractions. When they do not agree with reality, especially the ultimate reality of God's design and His perfect will. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
The human body was created for holiness, for worship. It was designed for beauty, purpose. And because he created us, he knows how to secure the best things for us. But he also wants to direct our thinking. Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, the world, our own sin nature and the devil would have us live by our desires, our lusts and attractions. That they would be conformed to its thinking and ideologies. But God who loves us, the world could care less about us. God who loves us would have our minds not only be redeemed, but transformed so that we would know and abide in his perfect will. Look at what Paul says. Again, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. How so, Paul? That you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So passion is the same as desire. It's you know, strong feelings. And Paul is saying that pagans are driven that way. We live in a pagan society now. We do. They make decisions based upon their passions. They determine truth by them. And that's why they're so confused, as, as we demonstrated earlier. But it, not, it must not be so among God's people. We have the word. We have a sound mind. We can lead by truth as we obey the word. Because sinful passions rule the world, we should expect what we see in the world, but because the people of God, of the word of God, we should see the results of that in our own lives, in the church community, in our marriages. Our values, our lifestyles should look so different than the world's. Okay, I gotta hurry up. I think we've been fairly clear about what the Bible says about sexuality, God's will concerning it unholy sex, the consequences of it. I want to do now what is illegal in Canada because of what is stated in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. This is the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. And he provides this initial list of the unrighteous. He says fornicators. This comes from the Greek word pornoi, which refers to prostitution, someone who charges for sex. But then it's also synonymous with just about any other kind of sex in the Greek world. Then there's idolatry. Uh, why would idolaters be sandwiched in between all of these other sexual sins? Well, Paul may have in mind what is called ritual sex, 
with a temple prostitute, a priestess. This was an idolatrous practice, so he may still have unholy sex in mind. Adulterers are those who have sex with someone other than their spouse, which violates the covenant of companionship. The word homosexual here in the Greek speaks of the effeminate homosexual as opposed to the masculine. The word sodomite is a compound word in the Greek, which means to be bed by another man. Some say the word has been translated incorrectly. Also in 1 Timothy 1, they say that scholars have not really looked into the meaning of the word, but have just adopted a meaning passed on from an earlier era in translation. Um, no. Thanks. You're the best. Sorry, I'm sniveling in your, your ear. I'm going to shut this off real quick. How's that? The word actually comes from an earlier translation called the Septuagint uh, from over 2,000 years ago when Greek was the common language of the Mediterranean region. You see, when the Jews were translating the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament, they just didn't combine the two Greek words together to make one word, to an equivalent that they were looking for. And so whether the words are together or separate, it means the same thing. It means male homosexual sex. Those who engage in any kind of sex, Paul is saying, that is outside of the marriage covenant as designed by God between one biological male and one biological female. He says this is sexually immoral. And these, Paul says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul isn't picking on sexual sin. Um, well, he is. He's just not, you know, it's not some special thing. Other sins are mentioned as well, just as they are in Galatians 5 and 1 Timothy 1. You see, it, it's the unrepentance of any sin that excludes someone from the kingdom, not just sexual sin. But look at what Paul says now. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I, I love that statement. And such were some of you. Some of the Christian believers that Paul was writing to in Rome were formerly homosexuals. Sodomites, prostitutes. And through the preaching of the gospel, they believed and they repented of their sin. Someone, perhaps it was Paul, perhaps it was someone else in the church, they confronted these former homosexuals about their sexual morality and called them to repentance and faith in Jesus, by which they were converted. Converted. Here the language of conversion comes to us this way. They were washed from the filth of their sin. They were sanctified unto God for his purposes. 
and they were declared righteous in his sight. Justification, dikaiosune means to declare righteous. They were declared righteous. They were made acceptable in his sight, just as everyone else who trusted in Christ. We were all dead in sin, but now we're alive in Christ through faith in Jesus. We were blind, but now we see. Every one of us belonged to the kingdom of darkness, but now we're citizens of the kingdom of light. We're now children of God. It is this reality that those who are excluded from the kingdom because of sin, that they can be included in the kingdom through faith and repentance, that's what motivates us to reach out to the sinner, to the homosexual. It's because they can be washed, sanctified, and justified. It's because of that that we're so inclined to preach repentance to them. So here is what is illegal in Canada. There are people among us who struggle with same-sex attraction. Some have engaged in homosexual activity and all other forms of sexual morality. There may be some among us who struggle with their gender. Listen, we love you. We love you. Though we may not know what it's like to be you. We may not be acquainted with your sin or the temptation you face, but we know sin and temptation very well. Like you, we've been broken by sin. We've been ripped off. We're not better than you. Our sin is just as condemnable as yours. But more importantly, we know what it is to be washed by our Creator and to be made acceptable in His sight. God says to you that if you will repent and trust in Jesus, who shed His blood for your sins, He will save you. And those he saves, he welcomes. He washes them. He changes them. And those who are his, he, he never leaves them. And he will never forsake them. Those who obey him are made happy by his grace and his goodness. And in his light, the confusion will fade. If you struggle with same-sex attraction or you fall into the homosexual sin, it would be our privilege to come alongside you and disciple you in the faith, to help you overcome temptation, to provide you with a community that will love and encourage you, hold you to the truth, accountable to his word. We won't compromise the truth or dilute the potency of God's commandments. but we invite you to join us in this difficult path called righteousness for the glory of God. Let's stand. I'll get you out of here. Lord Jesus, we know from your word and from our own experience that the only reason that we love you is that you first loved us and that you gave your life 
Lord, as a propitiation, an atonement for our sins. How precious we've become in your sight. And Lord, we know that as it was in Corinth, you had all these trophies of your grace. You're seeking those same trophies today. So Lord, I pray that you would motivate your people, that you would fill them with compassion for the lost, that we would have Paul's conviction that we're a debtor to all who are outside of Christ. Those the devil is ripped off Lord, help us to reach out to them. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Canada. Lord, give them courage to not just preach the truth, but to be godly when they do it. Help them to represent you well in persecution as Peter, who was joyed that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We don't want suffering for them. But Lord, your word says you've appointed suffering for us, that you might refine us. So Lord, refine them, we pray. Make them even more useful for your glory. Lord, we trust you. And um, we're thankful that you're sovereign. And Lord, in light of all this, again, we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.